John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. And early in the morning, he came again into the temple. And all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. When they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him, that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground, as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Then one verse out of the book of Mark, chapter 10. Verse 21. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him. That's really all I want from that verse. And Jesus, beholding him, loved him. I'd like to preach with God's help and with your help this morning on a message entitled, Even Then He Loves Me. Even Then He Loves Me. Let us pray. Reverend Hill, would you please pray over our message and messenger. Amen, amen. You may be seated. Don't forget next week, we fall back one hour. So I know if you've got cell phones and smartphones, it'll do it for you. But if you get up and you look at your clock on the oven, or you get in the car and you look at the clock there and you get thrown off, next week is fall back. So remember to set your clocks back an hour. And then remember, revival starts this Tuesday, 7.30, and then after service we will have our potluck. Years ago, a world-renowned person 
made a very interesting observation. The biggest disease this world suffers from is people feeling unloved. That was Princess Diana in September of 1997. I want to tell you a story this morning. It's a history. And it's what I just read to you. But I want to give it to you from two different points of view. First, we'll tell you from the side of one of the scribes and Pharisees that was there. And then we're going to tell you from the side of the woman that was there. So if you can take your mind's eye with me and put yourself on a stool right inside a window along a busy thoroughfare. And there, a young scribe is studying and memorizing the Torah, the Jewish scriptures. He's deep into it. When he hears voices, well, voices he recognized, they're his friends, other young scribes. And they're hustling down the, the street there, excitedly talking. One says, can you believe it? What a brilliant idea. I know this will be the one that finally catches this false teacher in his words. He couldn't help himself. Besides, he didn't really want to study. So he jumped up out of where he was studying and ran out to see his buddies and said, what's going on? So you won't believe this. But today, as we are coming back from our time of prayer, we happened by a window and we saw a woman and a man. And we recognized what they were doing and we recognized that they weren't married to each other. And we went and we told the teacher. Well, he came out, the master scribe, and said, oh, well, this is an opportunity for us. After giving it some thought, he said, I know exactly what we'll do. Because if we take this woman and we just stone her like the law says, we don't gain much. Because the real thorn in our side nowadays is this Jesus. He seems to gather more people than we do. Every time we bring up something to him, he seems to outsmart us. But if we can use this instance to both take care of this woman and get her off the face of the planet and also catch this Jesus, we got a win-win situation. And the young scribe, not even thinking about the utter hypocrisy, because really religion, the way that God intended it, was supposed to be about life, having a relationship with God, being united with God. And here they are, they're celebrating what they think is going to be a death one way or the other, of the woman or of Jesus and so as the young scribe hustles alongside of his buddies and they go along the thoroughfare to where they were told Jesus was, other scribes are coming and joining them. And they're thinking all along, well, we're going to stand for God and we're going to stand for righteousness. Matter of fact, as they pass the, uh, down the thoroughfare, they're scanning, looking for great big stones they could pick up filling their pockets and, and grabbing great big stones as much as they could as their crowd gathers. And, and the woman, 
wrapped in the sheet, and only the sheet, was hustled among them towards where Jesus was. Mysteriously, the man wasn't brought, was he? Still a double standard back then as it is today. Catch a woman who's promiscuous, they call her a slut. Catch a man who's promiscuous, they call him a stud. It's sin, and you'll die and go to hell being a fornicator if you're a man or a woman. And so as they hustle down the street, his heart is pumping. He can't believe how that an ordinary day gets turned into this exciting adventure. He's not thinking much of the woman, nor is he thinking much of himself. He's only thinking about how it's going to work out. And so they get to where Jesus was. Again, back in the voice of our young scribe, I stood there, my heart pumping from the the hustle that we made down the, the alleyways. My hands full of great big stones and a few extra ones in my pockets. And when we got to where this false rabbi was, and we pushed the woman in front of her, in front of him, and then the teacher, our teacher, saddles up to Jesus and says, well, we knew we had him. And you could hear the confidence in our teacher's voice. Well, Master, on our way back from prayer this morning, we found this woman committing adultery in the very act. Now, you know and I know what the law says, that we should put her to death. But what do you think? And as our young scribe stands there, he knew the trap. Why? They put her to death there and then. It will seem as if Jesus has no mercy on anybody else. And if they overlook it, it will seem as if Jesus doesn't care about the righteousness of God. It seemed to be a perfect trap to catch the master in. But Jesus, once he had heard the question from our teacher, he squatted down and was writing. I strained to find out what he was writing. And it's interesting because what I saw and what my friend saw seemed to be two different things. I thought he was writing hate. And I thought about the anger I had on the inside. My friend thought he was writing lust and thought about how he was thinking about the very girl that was only covered in a sheet as we pushed her along. We really don't know what exactly he was writing. But when he answered the question, he said, He that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I couldn't help but immediately think about the anger in my heart. I couldn't help but immediately think about my desire. You see, I so wanted to be accepted by the crowd. I so wanted to be given that stamp of approval by our leader. That though I sensed something was wrong on the inside, I just kind of hustled along with everybody else. I wanted to be accepted. I wanted to be loved. 
But when Jesus said, he that was without sin, let him cast the first stone, I could not lie to myself. I knew. I knew I wasn't sinless. I knew the hatred that was in my heart, the pride and the lust. And it didn't take long after I heard our leader drop his stone where I dropped mine and walked away. Thinking about my own guilt, my own sinfulness. He just wanted to be loved. But his desire to be loved and accepted had brought him to the place where he was willing to put another person to death to be accepted by the multitude. Now let's switch for just a second and let's go to our young lady. We find her at the beginning of the day sitting there forlorn. She's empty. I can imagine her as she sits there that morning saying, everything I do, it just doesn't seem like anybody really cares about me. I wonder, is there someone in this world that really loves me? Why, the very person that I thought cared about me, he broke up with me, and the other ones, they don't seem to really care about me. And it wasn't too long until maybe the neighbor peeked in the window, and he began looking at her and said, oh, you are so pretty. You know, there's no one like you. I sure do care about you. I knew that he wasn't telling the truth, but it was better than being lonely. I welcomed him in, and as he sat there and we drank some water, he kept on pouring it on. Little by little, my hesitations and my reservations went away. I found myself doing something that I knew it wasn't right. But for a little while, at least in pretense, I can imagine that I was loved. I didn't expect somebody to poke their head in the window. I didn't expect that I would get caught. But soon there was a a group of men in my very bedroom wrapping me up in the the sheet and pushing me down the, the, the alleyway. They said they were going to take me to see this false prophet named Jesus. But I knew what to expect. I should be put to death. They didn't even have to tell me I already was guilty. No one had to point out my sin. I sensed it on the inside. But can you blame me? I was just looking for someone to love me, just looking for someone to care. And after having been used and abused and left forsaken so many times, I thought, well, perhaps this one will really care. And now it seems like it's going to come to an end. This will be my last day on the face of the planet. I hugged the sheet tighter around me. I didn't want these hypocrites to catch an inch of my flesh visible. I knew they were just like everybody else, and I wondered, why didn't they bring my neighbor, the man that was guilty? I hung my head, hoping that nobody saw me as we went down the alleyways. 
And then they brought me to this man named Jesus. I could hear in their voice that they thought this was going to be the end. They sneered as they said to this man, we caught her in the act, in adultery, in the very act. And when they said that, I couldn't deny it. I felt so dirty, so alone, nobody cared. And then they went on to say, now the law says that anybody caught in adultery should be stoned to death. But what do you say? When they said that, I glanced down and saw all the stones clutched, gripped in all the hands of the men round and about me. I shuddered for fear. I was waiting. This Jesus, I thought he was going to be like everybody else. He was going to give the word and the stones were going to throw. And I could already picture the pain and I I was just hoping it would go quickly. But instead of Jesus saying, go ahead, he said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. I hung my head and I waited for somebody. Surely somebody would lie because I knew they weren't real anyhow. But by some act of grace and mercy of God, I, I heard one stone drop and then another. I heard footsteps as they walked away. And then I looked up. I looked up at eyes that didn't just look at my body, but they looked at me in love. It seemed as if the very love I was looking for was looking right at me. And he asked me, where are those that are accusing you? I said, it seems as if they've all walked away, Lord. There's no man here. And he said, neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. I couldn't believe it. But he was letting me walk away. I scurried back to my bedroom. I put clothes on. I washed. And I began to felt clean. I began to feel different. For once in my life, it seemed as if somebody really did care. I wonder today... As I tell you that story from two different points of view, if perhaps you don't see yourself in one or the other, sometimes we as Christians are quick to point out the faults of somebody else. For whatever reason, some seem to make themselves bigger by making others smaller. In their mind, if I can find somebody else that's worse than I am, I can pat myself on the back. And they're picking up stones as they come to church, waiting for the preacher to give the go-ahead so they can look down their spiritual snoot at somebody else. And yet sometimes as they sit there with a holier-than-thou attitude, something by God's grace begins to come into their heart and make them realize, you're not as holy as you think you are. You need grace and mercy too. I told the story yesterday, we came back from Baltimore on a church trip and my wife went into the, it was a three seats on this side of the aisle and she went in first and I sat in that wonderful middle seat and a man sat next to me on my right and I had purposed, I really wanted to speak to him about Christ. And I was trying not to wimp out, you know the feeling, amen, 
It's going to be two hours sitting next to this dude. If you don't do it right, he's going to be looking at you strange the whole time. And so I was waiting for and thinking about how am I going to start this conversation. And as he was there and we started to take off, the man started to get sick. Pulled out the barf bag, filled up one. His wife was in front of him. She handed him back a couple more bags. He sealed the one and started using the second one. I was hoping the smell didn't get to me and make me sick. Thankfully, it didn't. And after a while, it seemed to calm down a little bit. And when he seemed to kind of have control of himself, I, I, I was praying for him. And I leaned over. I said, hey, I'm praying for you that you feel better. He said, hey, thank you so much. He said, I'm so sorry that you have to, to put up with this. And I said, listen, man, nobody wants to be sick. You can't help it if you're sick. And he seemed so relieved. They weren't going to. Look down at him. We got to talking a little bit more. I said, hey, is St. Louis your home? He said, oh, thank God, yes, I'm going home. I'm going to stop by mom's house on the way, and then my wife and I were going to go home. I'll be in my own bed. Words similar to that. I said, that's great. St. Louis is our home too. I passed through a church there, and I, opening up the conversation about God, and, and I reached out to him, and he said, you know, we are ministers also. I said, well, that's great. And he said, I'm so glad I sat next to you. It was one of those, you can pick wherever you want to seat planes. I'm so glad I sat down next to you. You're not going to judge me. Now listen, we all understand what it's like to be sick. It's one of the most horrible things uh, to, to have that nausea. And you're just wanting to throw up. And sometimes you know the only way you're going to get the uh, relief is to go ahead and empty the contents of your stomach. And, and it's a horrible thing and, and painful and awful and, and humiliating. Amen? Humiliating. But if you've ever been sick, you can understand when somebody else is sick. If you've ever gone through that, you can have mercy on somebody else going through it. And that's exactly what God is saying. And so when we come to church and, and sometimes we're ready to look down at somebody else who we see is spiritually sick. Maybe they're struggling with cigarettes or, or they're struggling with alcohol. Or maybe they're struggling with pornography. That's the hidden one. Not a whole lot of folks will confess that. But it's not a small thing. Listen to some of these statistics. Every second of every day, 28,528 people are watching pornography. Every second of every day. Every second on the internet, $3,075. $3,075 per second is spent on porn. Globally, it's estimated to be a $97 billion industry, and $12 billion of that comes from the United States. You would think that it would be different among Christians, but it says 64% of Christian men, 15% of Christian women say they watch porn at least once a month. One in five youth pastors, one in seven senior pastors use porn on a regular basis and acknowledge a struggle with porn. 43% of senior pastors and youth pastors say they have struggled with pornography in the past. See, it used to be you had to go to a, a place and you had to ask somebody to give you the dirty magazine that was hid behind the, the counter. But now you can open up your phone and you can search for it and look at it and no one knows, not your wife, not your pastor, not the brother, not anybody else. 
But the impact it has, because the load of guilt begins to weigh down the Christian, and the devil has them trapped, for he knows that they're guilty and they're not right with God, and yet it's so embarrassing and humiliating to confess it and to go to somebody to get help that he keeps them locked in a corner, and he tells them the whole time, you filthy, low-down, good for nothing. Look at the devil. He tempts people to sin and then he turns around and finds fault with you when you do what he asked you to do. Amen. And so the guilt of their sin weighs them down. And forever they're, they're, they go on day after day. Sometimes they go a day or two days and, and they're not involved. And then they go right back to it. And they say, will I ever be free? And they think that they can never be delivered. Porn makes a ton of money, but at what cost? When it comes to divorce, 56% involve one party having an obsessive interest in pornographic websites. Instead of making you feel uh, a part of a group, it fosters loneliness. Because you do it all by yourself somewhere in some closet or some room where nobody else sees you. And then you think, and then the devil says this. You are so dirty and you are so filthy, nobody could ever love you. And he traps you. Are you still with me this morning? But here's what I want to tell you. When that woman, taken in adultery, stood there before Jesus, he didn't pick up a stone and say, you filthy, no good woman. He didn't join in the accusation and give her the sneer of guilt, I like everybody else. But he said, I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. It wasn't wasn't the, uh, the greasy grace that allowed sin to continue on. But it was a love acknowledging that she had sinned and she had failed. But my love for her was greater than her failure. And that with that love she could get up and leave that past behind and go forward changed. You see, sometimes we operate on the two extremes. Either we accept the fact that everybody has been guilty of some sin, and therefore we overlook it. And sin, unchallenged, becomes a stronghold in your life. Or we operate on the other extreme. When we pretend we're so holy and there's never a failure in our life, which keeps us just as in bondage because that's saying that I can do it without God's grace. But where mercy and justice kiss is in the middle, in that word called grace, which says, yes, we're guilty, but God loves us so much. When I understand how much I'm loved by God, I don't need to get love in the arms of a man or a woman, or I don't need to bury my guilt beyond a bottle or under a pipe somewhere. I don't need to do those things to cover up what's going wrong, because even then, he loves me. Even then, he loves me. Even when I'm guilty, he loves me. When your child takes their school picture, every hair is combed, hopefully. I still can't forget, in sixth grade, I had a big dollop of hair that came down. They took that picture. I said, why didn't somebody fix that thing forevermore, etched in my mind and in my sixth grade photo, amen? (laughs) Mom and dad put you in your nicest clothes, and you go there, your hair is all combed. Hopefully your your teeth or your tooth is brushed, amen? 
You take your picture, you want to look your best. But there comes a time where we don't always look our best, amen? Okay, here's where I was. It took me a second, I almost lost it. When your child is so well kept and their hair's braided and they got their pretty clothes on, you look at them and say, oh, they look so handsome, they look so beautiful. But what about when they're sick? What about when they've puked all over themselves? What about when they had an accident and you got to clean up all that junk that's in their, their pants or their skirt and all that stuff? What about when they're soiled or they're, they're bloody or they're bruised and they don't look so pretty anymore? Do you still love them? Yes, you do. If you're a parent, amen. You might not love the throw-up. You might not love the feces or the urine. You might not love the blood. But you understand, I love the child. And let me clean that stuff off of them. And let me help them so they don't get, end up that way. If they're sick, let me get them treated so that they can get healthy. And so we might understand what it's like to be sick. But we also understand that God doesn't want us to stay sick. And so we can have mercy for those who are involved in sin. We can have mercy for those have grace for those that have failed but we also understand that God loves us so much he doesn't want us to stay sick he doesn't want us to stay in failure he doesn't want us to stay hurting but he, his love leads us to a place of deliverance but it can never happen at the, at, at, with you always covering it up you got to come clean You got to come clean. Jordan Peterson, he's a clinical psychologist. People pay him to sit down and listen to them. And he said, people pay me good money and they spend a lot of time. And usually when I start my uh, therapy with them, people will come and they'll talk almost frenetically. So much at the beginning and it's only after many sessions where they begin to slow down the pace. And he said, it's this. It's because they have no one that will listen to them. Nobody that they can talk to. That's the great thing about Christianity. Not only do you have a pastor, and we'll do what we can, but I'm one man, you're a couple hundred people. And even if you say, Pastor, I want to talk, and we can't get together as soon as you want, I've got a God I can talk to. I've got somebody I can go to and I can pour out my heart to Jesus. And here's the thing. You may not sense love sometimes from mankind. As I started the message with, the greatest disease is for those who feel unloved. But here's the answer. And that is, if you feel yourself suffering from the absence of love, there is only one remedy. It's not a man. It's not a woman. You know why so many marriages end up on the rocks? It's because that woman thinks he's the knight in shining armor, coming on the white horse to rescue her from the job and the, and the, the duties of, of fixing this and painting that around the house and that now he's going to love her and protect her for the rest of her life. And she finds out his armor has some chinks in it. She finds out his white horse <laughs> smells sometimes, Amen. 
And here he is thinking, now I've got somebody to cook for me and do my laundry for me and be there in the bedroom for me. Everything's going to be great. And they put their expectation of God on their spouse. And when no spouse can meet that expectation of God, they are disappointed. And no spouse can. But if you feel yourself suffering from the absence of love, there is only one remedy. It's not found in a pill, a man or a woman, not found in a bottle. It's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you have hesitated coming to Jesus because you know you, and you know your sin, and you know your dirt, and you think, did he love me? Look at that woman, wrapped in the sheet, her sin known to all. What did he say? I'm not condemning you. I want to help you. I love you. I don't know if she ever saw eyes like that again in her life that looked at her with just love. One other poignant portion of Scripture I read to you from the book of Mar- um, yes, Mark, one verse. The verse was about a rich young ruler who came to Jesus saying, Lord, I've done everything that the Scriptures tell me to have eternal life. What am I lacking? And the Bible said this. This is so, so moving to me. It said Jesus looked on him and loved him. What did that mean? It didn't even say he hugged him. Didn't say he touched him. He looked on him and loved him. There was something coming from the presence of God to humanity. Something coming from the presence of God to this dude. This dude who was all about making money and having an appearance and and having a position and and, uh, making sure that everybody looked at him in a certain way. Jesus knew all about that. And yet, he loved him. And yet, he loved him. Hey, listen, no, but there may be people here today, you say, preacher, I got, I got things nobody knows about. Maybe you killed somebody. Maybe you broke up somebody's marriage. Maybe you, you stole some things from the, the office, and they never found you. Maybe you've got some skeletons in your closet. And because it's never come out, you're saying, can God love me? If I could open up the windows of heaven and have you see, you wouldn't find a God angry with you. You'd find a God looking down at you with love, loving you. Saying, I want you to be well. If you'll recognize how much I love you and give me your life, you'll not lack for things in this world. Because it's not the money and the cars and the clothes that satisfy. It's the fact that I'm fully loved and accepted. Even then, he loves me. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Although we don't know exactly what happened to the woman afterwards... I picture this woman having been loved in a holy way, forgiven, and then instructed by Jesus, go and sin no more.
I picture her living a changed life. But we do know what happened to the rich young ruler. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Just a minute, Reverend Hill's going to come and lead this altar call. But when Jesus looked on him and loved him, the Bible said he, he went away very sad, not willing to surrender. What about you? You see, you can walk out of here being loved by God, understanding Jesus loved me so much he died for me. And he's calling me. He doesn't want me to stay sick in my sin or in my, uh, in my bondage. He wants me to be free. He knows all about what I've done, and yet he beckons me so that he can heal me. Or you can walk away saying, I'm not going to accept it. God doesn't want you to end up in a judgment and a hell and a lake of fire. But because he loves all of his children, he can't accept heaven. He can't accept, he can't accept into heaven any sin because sin's like poison. And so it says, 